Okay, we're continuing our review of Matthew. <clears throat> Last week we reviewed Matthew 15, 16, 17, and 18. And this week we're going to review Matthew 19, 20, 21, and 22. So let's turn to Matthew 19. Let's uh, get our thinking caps on, our memory caps on, and see what we are retaining. <clears throat> and remember... Not next week, but the week after that. Next week, we'll finish up to review Matthew 24 through 28. And then we get that, we'll have a test. And, uh, will not be an open book test, just in case you're wondering. Um, so do you have the chance to, we've been reviewing the second half of Matthew last week, this week, and next week. And the first half of Matthew, you can review it online. The videos are online, reviewing Matthews 1 through 7, Matthews, uh, Matthew 7 through uh, 14, or 8 through 14. So you can find that on YouTube. And uh, if you go to the Matthew playlist, you'll see it there right in the middle, right after Matthew 14. Okay, Matthew 19, the first part of it here, through verse 12, is talking about uh, divorce, remarriage, all these things. And um, I seem to deal with this a lot in my personal interaction with other people, um, because a lot of holiness, holiness circles believe different things about this. Is, is divorce and remarriage permitted by God? Yes, it is. Uh, is it permitted by God in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. Is it permitted by God in the New Testament? So did God change between the Old Testament and New Testament in this regards to this? No. Okay. Uh, can uh, it be done for just any reason? No, isn't that what Jesus is coming against here when it came and asked him this question? Uh, what are what are some reasons uh, it's allowed? Adultery, okay. Okay. Or, yeah, it's for the hardening of heart, yep. Yep. If the unbeliever wants to leave, that's right. That's right. What about for those who are unbelievers and, uh, you know, maybe, like, for example, my father has been divorced three times now. Uh, if he became a Christian... And he wanted to marry someone else. Would he be allowed to do that in God's eyes? So where where is it? Where does the Bible talk about that situation? You know what? Where is that found? First Corinthians seven. Right. Anytime we're talking about this issue, there's there's really three passages that should come to mind: Matthew nineteen, First Corinthians seven, and Deuteronomy twenty four. Those are the three main passages that come to mind regarding this issue. Okay. Uh, there's other ones that we can talk about too that relate to this. The one in Mark. The other one in Matthew five. And Luke talks about it. But Matthew 19 is the most complete discussion on this issue. Okay? Um, so there are reasons that you can get divorced and remarried and be okay in God's eyes. Of course, uh, is is divorce ideal? Is that what God wants? No, it's not what he wants ultimately. Uh, but I think Brother Vaughn, he mentioned a minute ago, what, what's, what's the main reason? Just a one-letter word here, a three-letter, uh, three-letter word here. What's the main reason why there's divorce in this world? Sin. That's it. That's it. And it's, it's the reality of it. If there was no sin in this world, there'd be no divorce. Right? We'd have the need for that. What are some, we, know, we know it's not ideal. Remember this teaching. We went back to Genesis and saw the original conditions of marriage. What are some other things that changed when sin entered the world that made marriage not ideal any longer? What was the original condition when Adam and Eve got married? Do you remember any of these things? 
were they originally supposed to die? So would they originally be ever separated, uh, husband and wife? No, they originally were going to be together for good, one flesh for good. So that that wasn't there, right? <clears throat> Anything else? I'm trying to jog your memory here. So death would never set. I mean, we have our vows now, right? Till death do us part. But death wasn't going to do them part if sin had not entered the world, correct? Right, right. All right. Um, <clears throat> what are some reasons uh, not to marry at all? To never get married. Okay. So that's what it talks about in verses 11 and 12. This, this eunuch, someone who's made themselves a eunuch for God or God's called them to be a eunuch. Um, you have to have this gift of celibacy. Now, how do you know that you don't have this gift, according to 1 Corinthians 7? You're burning. You have a desire for uh, the intimacy with someone of the opposite sex that is natural to most people, except the people that God has called to live this life of celibacy. What's another reason not to marry? Persecution. That's right. That's good. You both answered at the same time. <laughs> but... uh. Right. And that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. And so Paul was telling them, you know, I, I want it to be better for you. It'd be better for you not to marry, to remain as you are, to be as I am, to be celibate. But he said, but he said if you do marry, even in those situations, you have not sinned. Okay, so uh, in situations of persecution, <clears throat> what's some of the reasons why getting married in a situation of persecution wouldn't be a good idea? Yeah, consider you're concerned about your spouse and your child. What about women who have small children? It'd be hard to feed them. Yeah, I mean, you definitely wouldn't have any Gerber, right? You wouldn't have any formula. Uh, and if you're not getting much food yourself, you're not going to have much to feed them. And practical reason, if you're fleeing from things, how hard would it be to be carrying a baby on? You'd be hard enough to flee for yourself on foot, let alone carrying a small child or a child that can't run for themselves or can't fend for themselves. Um, what are some reasons to get married? Sister Lauren mentioned one of them a second ago. Was it again, sister? Because you are earning. Yeah, that's one of the reasons to get married. Marriage is actually a solution to the problem of being tempted to give in to that thing. Yeah, it's one of the solutions to the problem. What's another reason to get married? Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. What would be the overall main reason why you should get married? Offspring. Godly offspring. Okay, that's good. But you shouldn't get married unless God calls you to, right? I mean, he, sh- he should be calling you to get married. And he should be leading you to that person who he wants you to marry. It shouldn't seem like, you know, the world thinks that you go try to find someone, you're looking around for them, and you're... and I mean, not that a Christian shouldn't be looking for a spouse if God's called him to it, but you, you shouldn't be using the world means to try to find a wife or a husband. You're, you're seeking the Lord about it. And as you're seeking the Lord and his, his kingdom and his righteousness... All the things you need shall be given unto you. And someone said, if you're seeking the Lord, the spouse God has you seeking the Lord, and all of a sudden, at one point in time, you meet, and then you keep on walking together. And that's kind of the way it works. That's the way it works for me. I know that. What was the main original reason for marriage? That he would not be alone. Yeah. There was not, not a helper suitable found for him in the animal kingdom, was there? No, he would have been... Maybe the closest would have been a monkey or a gorilla... And then he'd been shaving his wife back all the rest of his life, and they'd have lack of communication, and they wouldn't be able to have offspring, and 
All kinds of problems. The same kind of problems you see in marriages today between two humans who probably shouldn't have got married in the first place. Right? Yeah, probably shouldn't have got married in the first place. You know, they probably had problems with food. That she'd always want to eat bananas. He'd want to eat something else eventually, you know, those kind of things. So, but um, those are the kind of things you figure out beforehand. Okay, so the original main reason for marriage was to remedy this issue of loneliness. Okay? So if, if someone is putting this unnecessary burden upon a man who maybe he got divorced when he was an unbeliever and he desires to be married now to a godly woman, and he said, you can't because that spouse is still alive. They're not, they're still, ha- he still has this problem. They're still causing this problem of loneliness for him, uh, which God, the main reason for marriage was to remedy loneliness. And of course, he wanted God the offspring as well, as Brother Sean mentioned. Are there different meanings of good in the Bible? And I'm referring to the, the encounter with the young rich ruler here, where he said, no one is good but God alone. Are there different meanings, different definitions of good in the Bible? Yeah, must be, because aren't other people in the Bible called good besides God? And so, that's right. And so, when it comes to good speaking about here, Jesus must be referring to what? What kind of goodness is he referring to here? Sinlessness, never have sinned. Never have sinned. Where it's referring to human in the Bible, what must it be referring to? Someone who's living holy right now. Not that they've never sinned, but living holy right now. We see that with people like Noah and Job and Abraham and John the Baptist's parents, David, etc. What is the prosperity gospel? Someone explain that to me. Is it true that God has a great plan for your life? Is it true he has a wonderful plan for your life? Depends on how you define wonderful and how you define great. Hey, I think he has a great plan for my life. I don't know where I'd be right now. I'd be in the, be in the pit somewhere, in the sewer somewhere. Um, so God has a wonderful plan for you. Does God want to prosper you? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, he could prosper you monetarily. But is it God's main purpose in life to make your life happy and nice and healthy? That's not his main purpose. What's God's main purpose concerning you? To make you holy. Not to make you happy, but to make you holy. And what will flow from that is, of course, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Yes, that'll happen, because the world doesn't live holy lives. So why is this prosperity gospel... uh, First, tell me some people who preach this gospel. Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, okay. Just smiley guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why why is this gospel dangerous? We use the covetousness, okay, and covetousness is a sin. Uh, was Jesus homeless? He had no place to lay his head, it says. So was Jesus rich? Hey, but he had a treasure. It wasn't the treasure stealing money, so he must have had some kind of money, right? Okay, so when, when you when you think about the prosperity gospel, I want it to pop into your head right away, 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 5 says, Useless wranglings of men 
of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For he brought nothing into this world and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold of eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." So that those those few verses right there, about eight verses, pretty much destroy the prosperity gospel. Um, and so that that's the that's the first passage I want you to want to pop into your mind when you think about this. First Timothy six. First Timothy six. This would be the first thing that pops in your mind. Sure, sure. Just because you have money does not mean that you're ungodly, uh, but we are called to be good stewards of it. And so if, if, we're, if you look at the, your money and you're spending it on your pleasures, uh, you need to examine yourself. Um, you need to examine how you need to be good stewards over the money that God has given you. How much are you giving to further God's kingdom? You know, whether it's here or it's somewhere else. And how much money are you using to buy things that you want to buy that you don't necessarily need? You know, so we need to think about these things. We think about how we're using our money. And God will hold us accountable according to how much he's given us. You know, so there's great danger in having an accumulation of wealth because you're more responsible now. Just like a teacher's more responsible for God for teaching, stricter judgment, so will someone who has a lot of money. They have more to give an account for. And so money does not consist in the riches and the things we possess. Um, but we need to make sure we're, whatever we do possess, you know, as God continues to grow us in that way, you know, as 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 my as the ministry I have of the gospel track continues to prosper in that sense, I need to be concerning myself about what I'm doing with that money more and more, uh, not about how I can prosper my, my and build up my kingdom on earth, but how I can build the kingdom of God. And the same goes for you. You know, if you get a promotion at work or you uh, find another way to make money for your family, whatever it may be, you need to be thinking about these things ahead of time. So when that money comes. And temptation jumps on you with how you're going to spend all this money you have now. You're already prepared with what you're going to do for it. She prepare ahead of time, not in the midst of it. Okay, what is the uh, regeneration that's spoken about in Matthew 19:28? What is it referring to there? <clears throat> Referring to spiritual regeneration, physical regeneration, was it? Yeah, physical regeneration. Okay, um, who was a? So it's referring to physical regeneration there, which is the resurrection. It's also talking about Romans eight eighteen to twenty three talks about this, uh, where the creation is groaning, looking for the revealing of the sons of God. So it's a regeneration for the earth as well. Um, now, it's, it's right after that, it talks about these 12 thrones. Who were originally supposed to sit on the 12 thrones? It 
says uh, in verse 28, says, You who, says, uh, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's supposed to be the twelve apostles. And who's one of the apostles referred to there? Hmm. Interesting case for losing salvation, departing from the faith, uh, his sin costing him his soul. Okay, let's go to Matthew 20. <clears throat> what two groups of people are being referred to in the parable of the workers in the vineyard? Jew and Gentile, that's right. That's right, Jew and Gentile. Now we see uh, in verse 16, uh, it says, Many are called, few are chosen. The word chosen there is a Greek word, eklektos. Uh, what are some other possible and probably more accurate words that could be used in the translation of that word? Choice, okay. Precious, right. Anything else you remember? Worthy, Worthy okay, yeah. That'd be a good translation of it. Excellent. Distinguished. Those are all words that could be used there. So eclectos doesn't necessarily mean choice as in, I picked you, I didn't pick you. I picked you, I didn't pick you. Okay? And remember about what, where we went to, to to kind of prove that point? What we did? To a genus, right. Went to the Greek version of the Old Testament and looked at how the, this word eclectos was used. And how was it used more often than not? And a description of the person, describing the person, not describing what was done to them, but describing the, the type of cow, the fatted cow, right? The fatted calf and the different things, the choice chariots. Remember that? We went through all those, those, those verses for that. And so we see that more, more often than not, that that was the, that was how it was used in the Greek Old Testament. If that's the, that's the Bible they were using at that point in time, surely they're probably using it in the same way. And it makes more sense of, of this parable and other parables we'll see here in a few minutes. So what is verse 16 saying then when it says, for many are called and few are chosen? Is it saying the Calvinistic version that God is picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who isn't? What is it saying then? Right. Well, that's that's the, the next one. This is the workers in the vineyard. But the, the wedding banquet is in, in Matthew 22. You, you kind of jumped ahead of me. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but yes, it's the same kind of principle here. Uh, there were workers in the vineyard, and the, the workers in the vineyard did not consider themselves worthy to be part of the ones he called. You know, he didn't call them to be wicked workers in the vineyard. He didn't call them to uh, to kill the son. He didn't he didn't call them to complain about these things. He called them to be workers in the vineyard. And many, as he went to the marketplace to find workers, many said, well, I don't want to work there. So is he going into the marketplace? And uh, let's see where it says here. Um, let's go up to verse 4. It says, uh, well, he agreed with them in verse 2 for Daenerys today. And then verse 4, he says, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is not right, I will give you. So they went. And he talks about them going. And then he says in verse 6, Why have you been standing here idle all day? Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So it doesn't seem like he's picking and choosing who's gonna, who he's going to hire. He just simply getting anyone he can to go into a vineyard and hire them. right? So he's calling all these people. And the only thing we see in verse 16 is a difference between how many are called and how many are choice. right? Which is the lesser number? The choice ones. Because those are the ones who have chosen to obey his instruction to go into the vineyard and work. 
And so if Calvinism is true, that God is picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who isn't, then why would he call some who he hadn't picked? What kind of sense would that make? Is it a legitimate call even to them if they can't come or he hasn't picked them to come? Of course not. So we see many are called few are chosen. We should think into our into that. Many are called, few have our choice, few are excellent, few are distinguished, few many are invited. That's what the word kletos means there for called, invited, fewer choice, fewer excellent, fewer distinguished, so few have have decided to obey the master's call to go into the vineyard, the invitation to go into the vineyard, and become part of that choice, part of that elect, that eclectos. Okay? And we'll see that again here in Matthew 22 in a second. Okay, and we go on in verse 20 and on. We see there's a cup referred to there, and there's also a baptism referred to there. What is in the cup that Jesus refers to in Matthew 22? Matthew 20, verse 22. Suffering from from who? From from the sinners, right? I mean, not just Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, is it a cup of God's wrath? Okay, and how do we know that? Yes, James and John were told they will also drink the same cup. Yes, and so when we see this cup here, we know it can't be referring to that for that one reason alone. Uh, what was the baptism referred to there? Same thing, suffering. Suffering from wicked and evil men. Okay, And so we can see that, that this is going to affect our view of the atonement as we look at this. And this is one of the main passages in this and, and also what happens in Gethsemane that he uses to try to prove that this cup was somehow filled with God's wrath. But does the passage say that? Is that found anywhere there? So what are they doing? They're reading it into it, aren't they? Okay. Um, if the atonement... Is the atonement limited... Pay attention to the words now. Is the atonement limited in its sufficiency to save all? No, it is not. It is not limited in its sufficiency to save all. Is the atonement limited in its efficiency to save all? Yes. What? All right. So who who, do, who is the one? If we talk about a limited atonement, who who are the people or person who limits the atonement? We limit the atonement by how we respond to the message of the atonement. By how we respond to the message of the cross, we decide whether we're going to limit it to, to not be for us or to be for us. God isn't the one who limits it, as some people would say. We are the ones who limit it. So we see things like verse 28, to give his life a ransom for many. Is that referring to the sufficiency or the efficiency? Now, the sufficiency is sufficient to save all, so it can't be referring to all there. It says many there. So it must be referring to the efficiency. Of the, so how who is going to affect, okay? Not who it's sufficient for. It's sufficient for everybody. Christ died for all, and his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient in God's eyes to save every single sinner that ever has lived. But is every single sinner ever lived going to be saved? No. So it's not efficient because they limit. So when we see the word many... And referring to the atonement, it must be referring to the efficiency of the atonement, but it's not God who's limiting it. It's the sinner who's limiting it to not be for them because they don't respond to it properly. The drawing of the Holy Spirit. How many Jerichos were there? Two. That's right. What is a tell, a T-E-L? Okay, so is it a natural or unnatural mound? 
there by men over the course of time. Okay. So I would say unnatural. So what, what did I, what did, you remember what I likened it to? If you were to cut into it? Cake. Yeah, a layered cake, right? And, and what, what was there? There was one layer and the other was different than the other layers. What, what would it have been like? Chocolate. Chocolate. That's right. What are the other layers like? like That's right. So why, why did I call that layer chocolate? That's right, the burning of, of Jericho, the old Jericho. That's right. And what does, when, we, when the archaeologists look at the evidence of the tale of Jericho, what did they find? Did it, did it, did it support the Bible or did it go against the Bible? Supported the Bible. That's right. So what happened to Old Testament Jericho? Did someone answer? Okay. So let's talk about that, that issue of the, the walls of the city fallen. Uh, we knew it was burnt up, or the cabinetry said that. But the walls of the city, now, how did those things fall? What happened? Okay. I'm referring to how, what means that God used to make it fall. Okay. So so marching around the city will make walls fall, huh? Yeah, so shouting doesn't make walls fall, right? Walking around the city doesn't make it fall, right? So but but what would have happened if the Israelites did not walk around the city and did not shout? Would the walls have fallen? Ah, so you see faith and obedience being synonymous there, and you see them being required for God to respond the way he said he would respond, right? Synergism. Synergism, that's right. It's a great proof that Calvinism and monergism is wrong because it's faith and obedience and God's power working together. Now, uh, me and Brother Frank were talking about this the other day when he was doing an interview, and we were talking about uh, regeneration, spiritual regeneration, or being born again and what that means. I can't make myself born again. I can't give myself the Spirit of God. But God has promised that if I repent and I trust, he will give me the Spirit of God and make me born again. I'll become a new creature in Christ. And so we see that the, that the born-again experience is a, it's something where we do something and God responds to it. Now, he doesn't have to respond to it in that way, but he says that he will. And so uh, I, I can't make God give me the Holy Spirit. I, I can't make God cleanse my conscience and cleanse my heart. I can't make him... You know, make the old things pass away and forgive me of sins. But that's what he says he will do if we respond properly to the preaching of the gospel message. So we see a picture of that in Jericho. Okay? So it's good to, to review that. Okay, Matthew 21. What did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on? Donkey or donkeys? I didn't, I didn't hear that. Donkey, oh, okay. How many donkeys were there? So he didn't ride on both of them? Okay. Uh, how did this fulfill the prophecy? Did this fulfill prophecy? Which prophecy did it fulfill? Remember where it's found? Isaiah 62. Where it is. So fulfilled prophecy. Now we looked at this issue of, of Jesus told his disciples to go with the donkeys and how he, they would find him. And, and this is really a picture of, of Jesus' uh, you know, foreknowledge here from God. God gives him this foreknowledge. 
And uh, we see how open theism would not work with this view because there was free will involved. He knew the owner of these two donkeys would give them to Jesus, give them to the disciples in order for Jesus to ride on. So we see that open theism could not make that work because that man could have changed his mind. How could God foresee a man's free will and how he would choose to give the donkeys? What was people putting their clothes on the road in front of Jesus a sign of? What was it a sign of? Went back into Kings to look at that. Remember that? The movies seem to get it accurate. The sign of a king. Sign of a king. You see this in the in the, in the book of Kings. You see that uh, it's a sign of a king. It's royalty. So they were they were admitting that they believed he was the king. Um, how many times did Jesus cleanse the temple? Two or three. That's right. That's the right answer. Now I propose to you three times based upon the chronology I see in Matthew and Mark. Uh, most people will say only two times. When was the first time done? The beginning of his ministry or middle or end? Beginning. So that between the first one and the second was about three years apart of each other. Now, if there was three, they would have happened in consecutive days, the second and third one. Why was he so angry uh, that he decided to do this? Yes, exactly. So... What did, what did he what did he say they've made the, God's house into? Den of thieves. That's right. Okay, so um, let's see here. Okay, we, let's talk about the fig tree for a second here. What was the withered fig tree a sign of when she just did that? Okay, all right. Um, now, should have Jesus expected to have found some kind of fruit on this tree? So when, when he saw this, now it wouldn't have been much, completely mature uh, for at this point in time. We see Mark talks about that. It wasn't the season yet, but there would have been something there. And when Jesus found nothing, he see this tree with these big, big fig leaves on it, but no fruit at all underneath, not even little tiny fruits underneath. So what is that a picture of? Kind of picture of like hypocrisy, right? They had the facade of, yes, I have fruit. Come see it. Come eat it. But there's no fruit there. If you were, if, and the question I remember asking you during this teaching is, if we were to pull back the leaves of your life, would we find fruit? Or you just have the, you just have the, the, the facade of being a Christian. If someone could, if you lived in a glass house per se, if someone could pull back the leaves of your life, would they find fruit there? Or would they find nothing that Jesus found? Yeah, I used to have the bumper sticker on my other cars. Yeah, I've had that same one. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a picture of hypocrisy, and, and what did Jesus do to this fig tree? So what would he do to hypocrites? Yeah, they were going to go to hell. That's the worst curse you can get. Okay, so we see it's a sign of, and how does one bear much fruit? By abiding in Jesus, John 15, 1 through 6. That's right. Um. Who was Jesus rebuking in the parable of the two sons you see in verses 28 through 32? Who was he rebuking there? They even realized it. The Pharisees, that's right, the religious leaders. Yeah, he says that uh, the task leaders and the harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. 
he said that the first son said he was going to do something and then he didn't do it. The second, or the second son, no, that's the first, second son. The first son, he regretted, he said he will not do it, regretted it afterwards, and then went and did it. But the second son said, yeah, I'll go do it, but he didn't do it. And we see that the first one is symbolic of the tax collectors and the harlots and those who are considered the worst of sinners in, in uh, Israel. And the second one is related to these people who are, have the facade of obeying God, but they don't actually obey God. And we know we should be neither one of those, hopefully. We should be the third option, which is we say we're going to obey God and we go do it. Right? But at the least, we should be the first one. And we've all been the first one before. We all, we all have disobeyed God, so we all need to... I need to regret that and repent. Can anyone define, uh, I, I repeated this a couple different times, let's see what you, maybe you put it in your notes. Can anyone define vineyard for me? Don't have to be word for word, maybe you can just give it a try. How about I just give it to you? A spot selected for its fertility separated from the surrounding fields, cultivated with special effort for the sole purpose of bearing fruit. That's a good picture of us, isn't it? Because, you know, we look at the parable of the sower, right? Which was the only ground that produced fruit? The good ground that lasted, right? And so that's that's the that's the soil that's selected for its fertility. There has to be some kind of way of bringing forth fruit there, right? Um, and it's separated from the surrounding fields. Are Christians separated from the world? Like, different than the world? As different as light is from darkness. And cultivated with special effort. Does God put special effort into your life to cultivate you for the sole purpose of bringing forth fruit for his glory? What are the two nations that are referred to in this parable of the wicked vine dressers? The two nations he's referring to. It's not the Jew Gentile, just so you know. But that's close. He says in, uh, in verse uh, 43, he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. He's speaking to the religious leaders here. You know, taken from them. And so the nation he's referring to will be taken from is the, is the physical nation of Israel as far as those who are not following him. We do know those people who were a part of Israel, but who did follow him, right? Well, obviously, he's not referring to disciples there. They've been taken from them. And who are the ones he's going to be given to? Those who bear the fruit of it, right? And so we see in, in verse 41, the vine dressers there. Who are the vine dressers there? That's right. We see that in verse 45. So now when the chief priests and Pharisees received his par- heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. So the wicked vine dressers were the religious leaders. So who will be the new vine dressers? Christian, Christian leaders. Yes. Referring to Christian leaders. So it's referring to those who will lead the flock. And um, I mean, obviously it can refer to a, a more broader context as well. But that's specifically who it's referring to there. Um, all right. Let's go to 22. Matthew 22. Why didn't those who were invited to the wedding feast not go to the wedding feast? What are some of the reasons they gave? Because you just didn't want them. Yeah, because you just didn't pick them. 
No, that's not it. Right? They had to pre- prepare their, their dinner, fatted cattle. Okay, yep. What else? I think we've seen the main overall reason in verse, at the end of verse 3 is they were not willing to come. They didn't say they were not able to come, does it? Because they were not willing to come. Okay? Uh, verse 5, you see they made light of it and they went their own ways. Went to his farm, went to his midst, taking care of the things of the world. So they didn't care about the things of God. Um, the first ones who were invited in this parable, who is that symbolic of? Jewish people, that's right. That's right. Uh, what did Jesus say would happen to their city for rejecting his offer? Destroyed by fire, right. And did that happen? Yeah, when did it happen? 70 AD. That's right. That's right. What would the, what wedding garment was the one guest missing? What is that, what is that wedding garment? Holiness, righteousness, right? Yeah, the righteous acts of the saints. Yeah, that's what, that's what Revelation says. Um, some people would say that that's, that's Jesus' righteousness, and we've talked about that many times in this, in this fellowship, but it's not being clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Okay, it's being clothed of course, we need forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, but it's being clothed in the righteousness, which is the righteous acts of the saints. So God expects you to supply that. Uh, and what happened to him because he didn't have the wedding garment on? <coughs> Bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does verse 14 mean? And we talked about this a minute ago and Sean brought it up. What does verse 14 mean then in light of this parable? I mean, if we just read it like it says, many are called, few are chosen, it seems like, once again, referring to God picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who isn't. But does that make sense of this parable? Is that what you see going on in this parable? Or does he say as, um, in verse 9, Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. That's the calling there. That's the kletos. Many are called. But not all of them are coming. So there's a, there's a distinction between how many were called and how many are coming. Um, so we see this word eclectos again, fit for it, worthy, choice, excellent. So what is what is verse 14 saying in light of this this parable? Right. Yes, they're not coming the right way. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So that's it's, it's simply making a distinction between the two different groups. The called and the chosen, that all those who are called are going to come. We see in the parable who's making the choice. Okay, who's going to come and who isn't. It's the people. It's not the person who's making the call. We have to let the context of the chapter there that we're reading determine everyone to call. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Jesus' point here is to uh, even distinct, even prove that he's going to try to call everybody to salvation. Although I think verse 9 says, as many as you find. And so that's, I think that's referring to everybody. The point is, is to prove to the Jews, listen, I've called you, I've called you, I've called you, but you've rejected, you've rejected, you've rejected. And it's not my fault. Yes, and you'll be punished for it. Okay, we see in, um, starting in verse 15 now, that uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together. Were they usually on the same side? Okay, so what is the irony lesson that we learn from this, this situation here? The wicked 
the righteous. Yeah, you know, we might even see like a Muslim and an atheist, you know, against a Christian. Muslim and a homosexual. Which is real, yeah, because in, in Sharia law countries, they'll throw you from a high tower if you're homosexual. Or they'll bury you up to your waist and stone you to death in the city, city gates. So, yeah, so the, oftentimes, and we see this all the time in the open air. And it's, it's ironic when you, when you have an aha moment and you say, oh, wait a minute now, Mr. Muslim, why don't you tell Mr. Homosexual what you'll do to him if he was in your country? And you can kind of, like what Paul did in the book of Acts, turn them against each other to get him off of you. For a minute. Why were the Sadducees sad, you see? What did you say? No resurrection. No resurrection. That's right. And I mean, I'd be sad if all, it's all the life we had. That's what, that's what the atheists say. It's all the life we had. It'd be very sad, you see, if, if we were Sadducees. Uh, why will there be no marrying or giving in marriage in the kingdom? What does it mean? I, I explained this pretty thoroughly. What does it mean to be like the angels in this passage? Does it mean that you automatically become like asexual? Like you don't? Okay, doesn't mean that. Uh, so what, what is what is? I mean, what is God trying to... I, I went back to the beginning and talked about the angels and talked about the origin of human beings. I'm trying to jog your memory here. What, what, what did I say was the main difference in the beginning between man and woman and between angels? Okay, well, that's a difference. That's not what I'm referring to, though. Yeah, that is a difference. Okay. 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 Those things are true, too. That's not what I'm referring to, though. What I'm referring to is this context of what we're talking about here, how it made like the angels. Um, did God at the beginning have all the angels he wanted? Did God in the beginning have all the humans he wanted? How do you know that? But what did he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Did he say to the angels? No. So angels, angels have never been able to reproduce... Okay, humans have. Now, once we get into the millennial kingdom, are we going to continue to reproduce? Why is that? Millennial kingdom, us. Not those who are unbelievers when they enter the millennial kingdom, but us who are in the millennial kingdom. I'm referring to us here. Are we going to reproduce in the millennial kingdom? Those are the people who enter the millennial kingdom as unbelievers, though. That's why I'm referring to us. Yeah, so... Yeah, but I'm referring to us. Us. Yeah, so we're not going to be reproducing anymore. And then when the money came is over, will anybody be re- reproducing? Why is that? God has all he wants. He's put a stop to it. At the beginning, God had all the angels he wanted. At the end, God will have all the humans he wants. Right? Obviously, in, a, in, a, in a, an overall sense, he wants all humans. Right? He wants all to believe. But he set up the system where they must choose to repent, believe, and follow him to the end. In that sense, he has all the ones he's going to ever have. And so the main, main thing we see here, being like the angels, is that we're not going to reproduce anymore. Okay, we talked about that pretty thoroughly. Uh, but as far as, as whether we'll 
you know, live in the same house as our wife in the kingdom or, you know, if we all just have our own little one-bedroom shack, I don't really know how that's going to work, okay? Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But I don't, I don't think we can read that into this passage here or that we're not going to have as, as if we can think that, that somehow angels are asexual or something like that. I don't think we can say that from this passage. I mean, we look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story? When those angels two in the city, what do those men want to do to them? They want to sodomize them. Yeah, so, okay, so that's, that's what we can get from that passage. Okay, what, what is the, uh, greatest commandment? And what does that mean? So love is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling, huh? Love isn't a hug or a kiss or... Can a hug or a kiss be a way to express love? Yes. Okay. Doing something nice for someone could be a way to express love. But are those things in and of themselves love? What was Jesus betrayed with? Was that a loving kiss? If two people are not married and they're lusting after each other, is that... Is that love? No. Okay, so the the world gets so confused about this, what love is. They think when when the Bible says to love God, that they love him with their feelings. That's not what love is. Love is loving God with all you have. It's obeying him. That's what love is. If you love God, you'll keep his commandments. What's the second greatest commandment? And what does that mean? Put them first, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lay down your life. That's right. That's right. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it means also means preaching the gospel, right? Yeah. If you want your neighbor to have eternal life, then you want to have eternal life. Okay, finish this, this uh, statement that I gave you. Uh, rules without relationship equals... What does that mean? So does does Christianity consist in just a bunch of rules for you to follow? Is that all it is? No. What what is the, what is Christianity? What is eternal life? And and the one he has sent. That's right. So the, so the the whole thing of obeying God's commandments. I think the world gets confused about it because we talk about keeping God's commandments quite a bit. They think we just sit around and think about what we can't do all day. And to them, as a sinner, that'd be miserable because they love to do the things you tell them they shouldn't be doing. But life does not consist in that. I don't sit around all day and make a list of things I can't do. I just follow Jesus Christ and then I don't do those things. Because I have a relationship with him. This also applies to relationship between husband and wife and between parents and children. You know, if I just gave my children a bunch of rules but never spent any time with them, it would lead to rebellion for them. There'd be no relationship there. You know, so we have to apply it to, I think, all areas of life. What did David call Jesus, even though Jesus was his son? He called him Lord. And and that's one of the ways the, the that Jesus finally shut them up for good. It says in verse 46 of it, Matthew 22. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. And so... We see, it says in verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yes. 
So he, he, the Lord said to my Lord. There's two Lords there, isn't there? That's a good proof for the Trinity, isn't it? Yes. Okay. We're going to stop the review there. Is there anything else that you think I might have missed in these chapters that you wanted to point out and bring up? Sure. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. If you were a choice, if you were excellent, if you were worthy, if you were fit for it. Yeah, those are some other ways you can say it. But if you look at the context of both those times, what he's saying is obviously not referring to God picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who isn't. You know, they'll try to use it for that. And uh, if you missed that study, you can. Go, I'd encourage you to go back and, and review those. Uh, you probably weren't here yet, I don't think. You can go back and watch those teachings on those two chapters. Because um, we go into quite a bit of depth in the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek, to show how it's used over and over and over again in there. And uh, therefore, how we should probably be using it. That's, just, that's the same Bible that the apostles and Jesus used. They quote from it over and over again. So obviously, they agree with it. Um, yeah, so it's not a matter of, and Calvinists will bring these verses up, but obviously they're just extracting a verse from its context and simply trying to impose their own definition of eclectos onto it. Yeah. So, which doesn't fit with the context. Yeah, if you don't know the sword, I just found out about this today on a lot of times. I've got three exceptions on there. Yeah. Um, e-sword. e-sword. And in that, you could probably do a word search and a klektos in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint, and then they probably have an English translation next to it and show you. Did they do that? Awesome. Yeah. Well, either way, even if they don't, you can you can find the English uh, translation of the Septuagint online. Uh, the best one is probably Brenton's translation. So um, I would look at that if you want to look into it further. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though the word, I, I would, I would hesitate to, th- to throw the word "choose" in there as far as their their choosing because it's not found in there. I don't want to add to it, but I, but that's basically what it's saying. It's in between those two. Yeah, it's what it's saying. Between between the call and, be, and being worthy, there is a response on our part. Yes. It yeah. doesn't say that, but it's that's that's the determining factor. That. Yeah. That's the determining factor about whether the called, those who are called, will be part of the elect us or not. That's the determining factor. Determining factor is not God picking and choosing. It's the person. You, you can just explaining it to people. So you can be chosen by God if you choose to follow Him. Yeah. If you choose to give your life to Him and give His mm-hmm. life to you, your choice and precious. Right. And really, that's 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 how God has set it up. That's who He has chosen, in a literal sense. He has chosen those who choose to respond to the gospel properly. That's it. So He has chosen. He could have chosen. All sinners. You know, even if you stay a sinner, he could have chosen you to be in the kingdom. Of course, that wouldn't be going along with his character, but uh, the way he set it up, he's chosen those who will repent, trust, and follow him all days of their life. Amen. That's really predestination as true a sense when it comes to all people. Of course, we know predestination most times in Ephesians 1, etc., is referring to the Jewish people who he did choose without any works on their part, anything they have to do with it. That's not referring even referring to salvation. That's referring to choosing them as a, as a group and bringing the Messiah through them. Yeah. Yes? I don't know if I'm going to say this properly, but generally, uh, I heard Tim talk about this in Romans 9 when I was listening to his teaching, and he kind of pointed it out more. 
about how much Jesus was against, not really the Jews altogether, but most of the, I mean, obviously there were individuals he was against, most of the religious leaders were the biggest problem in talking about how to rip the, the, the leadership from you and give it to people who are actually going to lead properly. Yeah, the wicked vine dressers, yeah. Yeah, you know, from them. Like a lot of the parables were about personally started coming in contact with them, but this was basically prophesying what happens in Romans 9 and through 11, basically saying, you know, I'm taking the leadership from you and giving it to the Gentiles or anybody who's going to follow me. Right. And they're going to be. It just ref- when it says the, the two nations there, I don't think it's referring to Jew and Gentile yeah. because there are Jews who are saved. It's referring to nations in the sense of wicked nation, godly nation. You know, a nation in the sense of a group of people. Not necessarily a physical location. Yeah, yeah. yeah, with the wicked vine dressers. Yeah, a lot of times he is speaking against um, against the religious leaders, but of course the people themselves have to give an account too. They're give, that's right. But as we know, teachers give a stricter account, and so he's going to be harsher on the wicked teachers than he is on the wicked people who are following those wicked teachers. Those are all adjectives describing what kind of person they are, not what something that happened to them, but what kind of people they are. Yes, yeah, so he collect us. Right. 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 And you see the word collect us there again, too. Chosen. Chosen nation. So a choice nation, an excellent nation. And that... Sure is. I think I might have brought that out when we thought, thought through it. Yeah. But yeah, that's good. And then, well, I mean, that's who, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How is that possible if God chose you from eternity past? God chose you from, you're, you're saved from eternity past. How, how could you ever be a child of wrath? How could you ever not be his people? You've always been his people, even in the midst of your sin. I didn't bring it up during the review, but I, I did bring it up during the teaching. Yep. Yep. Yeah, there's no there's no problem there between giving to Caesar what is Caesar and giving to God what is God. What does God deserve? Yeah, he deserves your obedience, everything. It's here to give to Caesar taxes, what he deserves, and there's no conflict between the two. I do have a question about that. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that's what we can get from this. Because that, that governor was wicked yeah. that Jesus was under. And he still said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar. Right. And they were the, crucifying people and unrightly. And they were just taking over whole territories of nations of people and fertilizing them. And, and Jesus, uh, you know, we looked at last week, given the temple tax too. Do you think he thought the religious leaders were holy? Well, they were wicked. But he still gave the temple tax. And so we see that when when we when God calls us to give taxes to the government, we're not uh, necessarily accountable for what they do with it. Every government that's ever been has done wicked things with your money. 
that people have given their money to. That was what, four years ago? Four years ago, ago yeah. almost five now? Yeah, yeah that was a long well, time ago. Four, five, yeah. We were going around the neighborhood interviewing guys that voted the pastor right, who lived right behind me. Yeah, I, I really hesitated that year of voting. I was yeah, really. I tell you were really having a problem. I was uh, very hesitant to vote uh, I, I, at that point in time. I did it because I, I didn't want uh, Obama to be president, but that, I, you know, that obviously wasn't the wrong, right mindset to have. Shouldn't be, I mean, McCain was evil too. So. <clears throat> but I repented of that. It's a, it, it, I just watched, uh, just read an article recently, and I read this a while ago, and it's still going on about uh, this Hobby Lobby. You guys probably know who Hobby, Hobby Lobby is. It's a craft place. They're Christian-owned, supposedly. And the government, through Obamacare, is now forcing them to pay for abortuary pills, like the morning-after pills, for their for their employees. And they're refusing to do it. And the rule says that if you refuse to obey the Obamacare rules, that you get fined $1.2 million per day. And so it'll put them out of business pretty quickly. And they're trying to fight it in courts, and it's just not working. I actually saw a debate about that on a forum. There are people who said that they should do it because they'll be judged for people losing their jobs more so than people giving the pills. And these are Christians supposedly fighting for the So give in to one sense so they don't have a job. I would just go out of business. That's what I would do if I had to just go out of business. And, and you know, if I had to be poor from there on out, I'm not going to give money for people to kill their babies. Forget that. They could do that to us. I mean, have you ever had one employee? Could they do that to you? Yeah, I don't, I don't really have any employees. But if, if I do, I'm sure I won't be picking any un, non-Christian employees who would yeah. do something like that. Yeah. But... Um, Obamacare, yeah. No, I don't think so. It's going to get law at the beginning of the year, and uh, that's when it will start. And so, like, $1.2 million a day. Yeah, I mean, this, this is one of the ways, I guess, so Obama's uh, going to erase the deficit. Going to put all the Christian businesses out of business. It'll be interesting to see what happens. That's free religion at the door right there. Because you have no freedom to do what you want with your own business according to your own religious convictions. Right, right. They wouldn't print homosexual stuff. They probably targeted them, yeah. Wouldn't surprise it at all. They're very intentional about these things, from what I've seen. So I don't think we can prove that. But.
Okay, so next week we'll finish up uh, a review on Matthew, and the week after that I'm going to give you a, a test, which will consist of multiple choice, true, false, and probably fill in the blank, maybe one long essay. Just kidding. <laughs> no essays. You're going to get these videos uploaded so we can review them as families. The review we're doing right now? Yeah. Oh, I don't know if that'll be up in time. Yeah, I don't know if that'll be up in time. I mean, we just did it. We're just doing it the last three weeks, so it should be pretty easy to remember that stuff. And hopefully, you're taking notes during, you know, at least mental notes. And uh, yeah, she was getting ready to go through all the. But she's still trying because of a lot of teaching. She missed a lot of the initial ones. Yeah. And I was like, that's like, he's got like 73 videos. I think you set up there. I was like, that's a lot of hours of the footage. Yeah. You're not going to get through that. <laughs> yeah, 73 hours. Well, if you just get no sleep, you can probably get through it in three days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, I was looking at, at the video. You go to the um, just the first five minutes when you're reviewing it. Yeah. But you know, some of the videos I tell you weren't feeling well or something. You didn't really go into it very in depth. Uh-huh. But this is a good in-depth thing. That's why I was hoping you would upload these videos. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. See what I can do. Okay. Still got a bunch of other ones before these ones upload. So it seems like it'd be weird if I upload these ones, not the other ones first. And if you go through the list, you're going to find there's a couple of them missing uh, that I didn't have good sound quality for or the sound got turned off somehow, and I haven't reproduced them yet. You had to all Yep. Yep. There were a couple from Matthew in that one, I think, too. So, yep. That's what happens when you're depending on an ungodly company to host your videos, do whatever they want to do. Even I mean, GodTube did it to me, too. I had some had some stuff up there a long time ago, I think concerning Benny Hinn or something like that, and they took it down. So, but they're they're ungodly too. They're they're antinomians. They're owned by antinomians. Got two biz by Dallas Theological Seminary guys. We started it a long time ago. <laughs>